the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you follow the news, we hear many stories of what is developing in India. Of course, India is one of our primary trading partners. A lot of news focused on what's going on in the economy of India and its partnership with the United States. But what about what's going on on the continent spiritually and morally? Joining me with some insights is Brother Philip, not his real name, but he is with Mission India and joins us today in studio. And Brother Philip, great to see you. Hello. We talk a lot about what's going on with the finances of India and this great partnership that we've seen developing between the United States and India over many, many years now, um, certainly in the arena of high tech and whatnot. But there's so much more going on behind the scenes in the continent that I think would be of particular interest to our listeners today, especially in the realm of, of what God is doing across the continent of India. We know that while there is tremendous growth Within the church, new church plants taking place every day, new people being baptized into the body of believers. We also understand that there's a tremendous amount of persecution taking place in India as well. Tell us a bit about that. Greg, thank you. I think uh, um, you have put the uh, question in the right perspective. Uh, India is a land of challenges and opportunities. And of late, I understand God has shifted his office to India. And he's operating from there. Well, there is a persecution, there is opposition, animosity. It's always there. And it's also there today. But the other side, there are open doors. People who have been seeking for truth for ages. Now coming to understanding, the seeking doesn't really help running from pillar to post. But there is truth that is already available. And that's the reason there are untold millions of people in India today are coming to the knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. Before 2000, year 2000, the percentage of Christianity in India is between 2.7 to 3. But today, people in missions like us, we believe it is almost to the tune of 5 to 7 percent. Wow, so almost double. Double. Because people are having hunger to know the truth. Even though there are 330 million gods and goddesses, people find, despite of appeasing them over and over again, they're unable to get answers for their life questions. And it's interesting because India is so much characterized as a nation that is spiritually hungry. I mean, when you talk about the practice of, of Hinduism and the 330 million mm-hmm. gods 
And um, while certainly every group in different parts of the country geographically will worship and observe different gods, sometimes yeah. multiple gods, um, from an American perspective, we all know of a Shiva. Uh, but on top of that, there are upwards of 330 million different gods or deities that are recognized, God with a small g. It's fascinating how that this spiritual thirst of the Indian people that seeks to want to appease God, uh, seeks to want to um, in, in, in some way seek favor from God, and in the appeasement, doing what we can to not make God jealous of us, uh, doing what we can to do something for God. And what a fascinating contrast then when the gospel message enters into that realm and people now for the first time hear of a God that doesn't seek for us to do something for him. The story is really about what he has done for us. For us. Right. And I would imagine for millions of Hindus then, this is a wonderfully liberating message because it is, it is such a stark contrast between what they have worshipped and served and followed for all of their lives and suddenly to hear about this other God right. that has cared for the people of India so much that he would sacrifice his only begotten son, that instead of him seeking that we do sacrifices unto him, instead he has allowed his son to be sacrificed on behalf of us. That, that's got to be an amazing message when, when it is delivered to a, an Indian seeker. That's right. That's a great paradigm shift. You know, instead of you doing something, there is somebody who has already done something on the cross of Calvary. Now, we are just pointing out to that person, you know. In India, as you rightly said, you know, it's a very, very religious nation. People believe in God. Every day they do something that would please God. And this, in this struggle of uh, pleasing and appeasing God, there is a great passion and thirst to know, am I doing the right thing? Is my prayer answered? Is there answer for my questions of life? Is there anything that, that can resolve, you know, uh, the struggle that I'm going through in my life? And uh, sadly, a lot of people of India do not have answers for and I think so much of the religion, too, that focuses on things such as karma and reincarnation that, that are always – every question begets another question. Mm, right. And that question begets yet another question. And the irony is not just Indian people but people around the world. Uh, they have the questions. What they're looking for are answers. Can I know God? Can I be sure in my relationship with him? Can I have a relationship with him? What does that relationship look like? Does heaven exist? Does hell exist? And if so, where am I bound? Is there an afterlife? We have so many questions, and yet sadly, so many of the world's religions, including Hinduism, fail to answer any of those questions. I guess in that respect, then, it's no wonder that you've seen such a phenomenal growth. And going from a 2%, 2.5% to 55 6% of the Indian population believing in Jesus Christ in just the last decade, decade and a half, while perhaps from American uh, percentile numbers might not be too impressive, when you put that against the backdrop of a nation that has more than a billion inhabitants, we're talking about significant growth, significant numbers. We're talking about 
Christianity and the good news of the gospel message spreading like wildfire across the entire continent. And so therefore, I guess, we shouldn't be surprised at some of the stories that we've heard of tremendous persecution, both at the hands of secularists, Hindus, and even Muslims to the north part of the country. And then at the end of the day, India is really becoming a major spiritual battleground then for for the very soul of the Indian people. For a church planter, you know, every day there is a spiritual warfare, and he's mentally prepared for it. Because I would always say that, you know, if the church sleeps, Saturn sleeps. If church is awake, mm. Saturn is awake. And the persecution is the sign of church growth in India. And we are not surprised. We are not surprised. There's something, a church has burned a couple of weeks back in India. You know, pastors pulled. A couple of months back, a pastor was stabbed in uh, very close to a city that I live. He was brutally killed. And uh, does it stop the movement of God? the sweep of the Holy Spirit in India. No. Yeah, this is the irony, I think, that even as much as the communists, I think back of what happened in China, for example, in 1949, yeah, right. when Mao took over and they shut down the universities, the, the Christian colleges and universities, they closed down uh, the seminaries, they jailed all the pastors, they bordered up the evangelical churches, and the church went from having maybe 80,000 to 100,000 Christians at that time to now millions and millions of believers, a number so large that even the government numbers can't hope to even reach what that reality looks like. And so the irony is that the harder the enemy fights to try and stop the spread of the gospel, the faster the gospel spreads. <laughs> it's just God's way. In God's economy, that's the way it works. Yeah, that's it. That's what exactly is happening in India. You know, the numbers that I have with me right now is like, you know, um, uh, the churches have an exponential great, uh, growth today, you know, in India. People are inquiring. People are coming to the Lord. It's not because there are crusades, not because there are big conventions and all that. It's one-on-one, you know. Especially when we train people as a church planters, we always train them that the, the making disciples should be our motto because a disciple-based church is multiplies. So it's very grassroots. Yeah. Yep. In that viewpoint, it's very reflective of the first century church of the book of Acts. Yep. Um, each one tells one. And then the one-on-one discipleship in prayer, church attendance, baptism, reading of God's word, sharing your faith with others. If you've just joined us, our conversation today with Brother Philip, he is here visiting from India on behalf of our friends at Mission India. We'll take a brief time out and continue with this update on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation on the special edition of Lifeline. We're visiting with Brother Philip. That's not his real name, but we've asked him to join us today in studio to talk about what God is doing all across the continent of India, one of the fastest growing aspects of the global church today. Brother Philip, that disciple-based church multiplication was not only the key to the success of the church growth in the first century, but is the key to success in church growth in this current century. So 
in that regard, there's no secret here. It really is the same formula that's been handed down to us since the apostles modeled it in the first century. The first century model, you're right. Some people call it as a New, t- new, new Testament church, a uh, pattern of planting churches. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one-on-one. You know, people are coming, you know, uh, to the Lord uh, one-on-one every day. You know, I was uh, uh, told by somebody uh, a couple of days back that in India, almost like every day, 15,000 people, a minimum, coming to the know the Lord every day. Wow. You know, so uh, I think India is God's next big thing, as I understand. Where do you see the influence from both the economic and secular realm in India today? And I ask that question because we started with comments about the partnership that exists between the the United States and India. We know that there's been a tremendous economic growth in India in recent years. There's been a huge shift um, of technology into India. And so with that has come the influx of more Western influence, more Western money, things of this sort. I, I've got to believe that some of that has had somewhat of a impact on society, whether we're talking about a change in morals um, in a drift towards secularism, or as we've experienced here in the United States, uh, the impact of greed and what happens when people get a little taste of money, and now they begin focusing on wanting even more of it. Are you beginning to see that kind of negative influence creep into Indian culture? Uh, most of the India is rural, you know. Uh, so India has to be, when you talk about India, there is a complexity and paradox kind of thing between the rural and the urban India. In the urban India, you see uh, 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 influence people pursuit for prosperity, pursuit for popularity. It is there very much. So if you go into the big concentrations of population, whether you're talking about New Delhi or Mumbai, uh, down in Chennai, the bigger areas, larger population areas, you really see the influence. You're you're right. But when it comes to uh, the rural India, which is actually the real India, in my uh, opinion, 443 million Indians live with less than one dollar a day. 443. That's the latest number that I have. It's an amazing contrast then because you have really two extremes on the same continent. I mean, in the United States, um, we certainly have a division between the haves and Mm -hmm. have-nots. And and, and you can certainly see uh, sectors of class. But the level of extreme is nowhere near what you describe. I mean, in that regard, even the, the poorest American is probably wealthy by Indian standards, when you talk about the rural population of India, some people of which live on less than $30 a month of income. With that, is there a different approach that needs to be engaged in, in sharing the gospel, whether you are a church planter working in Mumbai versus a church planter that's working hundreds of miles outside of the city in a rural area that perhaps has no running water, hasn't even been electrified yet? Does the approach in terms of how the gospel is shared change between those two contrasts in India? Yeah. Uh, some people, you know, fill the bellyless soul, and some people fill the soulless belly. Mm. You know, I mean, but uh, I personally believe that what we need in India today is a holistic transformation. Even people who have pursuit for prosperity 
also should need to understand the importance of the gospel, urgency of the gospel in their life. And the same with the people who are living less than one dollar a day. Because the gospel has influence. Only thing, the approach, the methodology, the channelizing of the, uh, of the gospel is changes as for the urban and the rural is concerned. You know, Jesus is Lord of all. And uh, today I see, like, you know, in India, I feel as if India is an ICU, intensity of care unit. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody has to pump life into it. There is great opportunity. And um, I'm involved in missions for almost like 25 years now. We're, we are running almost like, you know, there is an urgency because uh, when the doors are wide open, we really want to use that opportunity to show the world that you have answer for your problems in Christ who is crucified. You observe when the doors are wide open. We've typically seen this phraseology used with historically closed countries. Uh, we've talked about it in terms of um, communist Russia, communist Vietnam, communist China, other places where oftentimes there might be some other exterior influence or political influ influence that could potentially close those doors. Could there ever be that possibility in India? In India, already uh, in seven uh, states there is anti-conversion law is already in place you know so there already are the roots of a political response to what they're seeing in terms of some of the spiritual change taking place in you're, India you're right you know and a lot of Indians ask today if Christian percentage is 3.7 according to the government why 80% of Hin uh, uh, the Indian Hindus have to fear about it. Hmm. Yeah, good so point. Minority. Not quite a threat in that regard. So minority. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a minimal when you think of 1.21 billion people in India, we're only 3.7%. And why somebody has to persecute us? Why somebody has to feel insecured about the existence of Christianity. Well, and I think at the core, you, you touched on part of the answer earlier when you said that when we see the church on the rise, it's not a coincidence that we also see the work of the enemy on the rise as well. Because at the end of the day, this is not really a, a battle between Hinduism mm -hmm. and Christianity no. or to the north toward the Pakistani border between Islam and Christianity. It is a battle between two Worldviews. It is a battle between good and evil. It is a battle between very God Himself and Satan. The good news is, having read the entire Bible, we know at the end uh, how, it, how the story oh, turns true, out. But meanwhile, along this path and during this process, I think it's quite natural that we're going to see um, some people feeling threatened by this. And I would suspect, too, perhaps, and you can maybe address this question, Brother Philip, that part of the concern, too, is just the, the image that seems to be associated with westernization of parts of the country. I mean, you're looking at a nation that is rich in its its history and its culture. Um, I think Westerners have an extreme fascination with India because of the sights and the sounds and the foods and, and, and so much that makes your culture so fascinating. And yet to see more and more of the Western influence and knowing that while we tend to export 
a lot of good stuff. Unfortunately, a lot of the bad stuff comes along with it. And so I can see where that would be perceived as a threat to the health of Indian culture and society. And as a result, everybody kind of gets lumped into the same uh, arena, so to speak. Uh, it has already made a, a great negative impact already uh, in the culture, especially when I uh, speak in terms of urban uh, urban uh, scenario. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you said Delhi, Mumbai, Calcutta, Chennai, you know, cities like that. And the other side, you know, we are also carried away by the idea of that globalization. You know, you talk about a global village today. I mean, uh, there's a lot of inclusiveness in that. There is a lot of legalism. You know, people are uh, a craving for liberalization of things, leaving that exclusive uniqueness, what Christ demands. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible says that you're called to be holy. God calls people to separate. When I talk about inclusiveness, everybody is interested. Well, I have 330 million objects of worship, you know, in India. You know, one more is fine, no problem. It's It's okay. But that's not the gospel I'm preaching. You know, I'm preaching the gospel that, you know, the uniqueness, the exclusiveness, Mm -hmm. it's not inclusive. Not one of many gods. This is the the God. God. You know, the problem comes there. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, the the question comes, why do we have all 330 million, you know, objects of worship at all? Brother Philip, let's pause right there. I want to take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our discussion, better understanding not just the beliefs of the people of India, but most importantly, how we as the church can effectively pray for them. On this edition of Lifeline, we're visiting today with Brother Philip, who is with Mission India. We'll take a brief time out, get back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. With me today is Brother Philip. He is with Mission India. We're talking about what God is doing across the entire continent. And uh, Brother Philip, just before the break, we got into some conversation pertaining to influences and challenges facing the church as it shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I particularly want to come to this topic of man's innate sin nature. We like to add layers of complexity to all of this from a comparative religious viewpoint. But at the end of the day, I have to wonder from your perspective, is is part of this at the very core just simply an issue of man's sin nature? I mean, whether we are trying to avoid dealing with very God himself and the question of our relationship with him and our sin and the need for repentance to be reconciled unto him, to receive forgiveness, to walk in fellowship with him, and we avoid that by concentrating on all of these other gods that are made of of clay and of the work of man, or whether we try to avoid that question by going out and making $10 million on Wall Street next week and buying the biggest mansion on the corner lot, at the end of the day, it seems to me it's all really about one core issue, and that is, again, this struggle between good and evil, God and the enemy, and man's 
fallen nature and our propensity to try to avoid confrontation with God. Because if we if we have to be engaged in in being confronted by God, we are then confronted by our own sin, and we then begin to realize, much as Adam did there in the Garden of Eden, that I am suddenly without any clothing. Hmm. That's right. Yeah. So is that part of the dynamic here that we see in India? Uh, to a certain extent, yes. You know, um, I think the mission's concern today in India is like, you know, you have a 29 states, 7 union territories, 1.21 billion people. Uh, some people say there are 4,653 people groups, castes and subcastes. Out of that, um, if we precisely um, speak about the distinct people groups in India, there are 2,234, out of which 2013 people groups are considered unreached according to the research done. Wow. A lot of work to be done. So much work to be done. So, uh, as a guy involved with the missions in India, I personally feel with having all said and done with, with, with uh, so much of uh, complexity of things in India, we have a, a business to complete. Mm-hmm. We have a mission to accomplish. So many years, I think, the Great Commission has become a great omission, even by the churches. So sad. We are so bogged down with the, the compound a style of functioning of a church, not being a sensitive to the needs of the surroundings. But I think this is a time that we break those walls, build the bridges into the communities, and let this life-changing, the transforming power of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ has to reach to this 2013 so-called unreached people groups in India. So then it really becomes a matter of not the methodology per se, which we tend to be hung up on, particularly from a Western standpoint. We do something that it seems to work, and so we decide, okay, this is the way it needs to be done. And we try to then uh, duplicate that everywhere that we go. The problem is that it doesn't always cross cultural lines, societal lines, linguistical lines, historic lines, whatever the case might be. So while the methodology may need to change, we know at the core the message remains the same. You're right. No matter how you present it, to whom it's presented, in what tongue it's presented, it is the same, same. message. Have we gotten too hung up then on methodology, and has that gotten in our way of effectively communicating the message? See, again, uh, there is a challenge. Like, you know, when you again come back to, as I said, the major chunk of India is in rural India. And uh, today, almost like 66.9% of Indian rural cannot read and write. You know, so a lot of us, we try to print a lot of books, literature, distribute them maybe 100 times in a year and all that, you know. Um, Not asking the fundamental question, can they read that at Mm -hmm. all? Can they read? They don't. They can't. So uh, 
methodology, you know, keeps changing according to the context of the people, the culture of the people. As you rightly said, the gospel is the same, right? But it's the method and the cult are uh, based on. We always keep the uh, context or the culture as a backdrop when you present the gospel in India. What culture are they in? What is the context uh, in uh, uh, that they are living in? So that is always the priority. Well, I think that's important, no matter to whom we're sharing the gospel, because of relatability is critically important. And obviously the manner in which presenting the gospel and relating the gospel to somebody that comes from a culture that has as a backdrop 330 million different deities is going to be entirely different than presenting the gospel to somebody who historically has come from a family of atheists. In the one scenario, you have to convince and lead a person through the Holy Spirit to come to decide or understand that above all the other gods, this is the God, as opposed to having to convince a person that God himself even exists. So you're right. There needs to be that cultural sensitivity. And it strikes me, too, as you mentioned about um, literacy rates. We come back full circle to the beginning of our conversation with regard to the, the methodology modeled by the first century church and the apostles. And, and while we see many of those apostles who walked with Jesus, who could have easily said, I mean, a, a Matthew could have said, well, I've written this book. <laughs> let's, let's make copies on papyrus, and we will send them on to Corinth, and they can read this book. He didn't say that, though. Instead, what did the apostles do? They got up and they went. Jesus didn't send books, and I'm not... I want to be cautious here. I don't want people to think that I'm against the sending of the printed word or distribution of the gospel. I'm behind that 110%. But what I'm suggesting is that there are times when the most effective means, as in this case, is the sending of an individual who can go in, walk with a person, share with a person, reach a person for Christ. And then we've so often seen that becomes sort of a domino effect, that each one tells one, and before you know it, a person has reached a village, the village has been reached for Christ, that village reaches its neighboring village, and on and on it goes. And suddenly we now begin to understand how India can see church growth of as much as 15,000 people a day coming to Jesus Christ. It's yeah. the most brilliant and most effective strategy because it's God's strategy yeah. for reaching the world. Uh, when we talk about literature or printing a book or anything like that, there is a dichotomy again. There are people, because they cannot read and write, they, they can't read. They don't understand anything. But there are people who can read but cannot understand. Like, you know, in the Bible you see in the book of Acts, um, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, he was reading something, but, you know, he doesn't understand anything. And when Philip goes there... He says, do you understand what you are reading? He says, no, I can't. So you see the, the dichotomy mm -hmm. in, even in India mm -hmm. because, there, you know, India always have those paradoxes, extremely intellectual, extremely illiterate. You know, and the gospel has to go to the both ends. Mm -hmm. And that's a big challenge. As for a missions like us, it's a big challenge. So we print books, you know, we push them to the places where people can read. 
but reading uh, that doesn't really just simply uh, be helpful so we give them the tools so that they understand what they read the other extreme is like you know people who cannot read what we do we teach them first how to read so that is where the literacy movement role is in india you know making them to read and write their own language there are a number of stories people after reading they understood they are the real human beings before that they were substandard mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they felt you know what is we have no role in our society because simply because we don't read and write they have no value no, no role in no, society no, no value. and no capacity to change yeah, especially women folk mm-hmm. you know that's the reason they were always at the backstage because simply you know they have nothing nothing to contribute they felt you know we have no identity absolutely it's amazing the way the gospel of christ can come into a situation like that and suddenly provide that identity and worth and value a brief time out back with more as lifeline continues and now back to lifeline with craig roberts Welcome back to Lifeline. On this edition of the program, we are pleased to have with us today in studio from India, Brother Philip. He is with Mission India. We've been talking about what God is doing all across the continent, some of the phenomenal levels of growth, and most importantly, how you and I as the church in America can and should be praying for our brothers and sisters in India. As our conversation, Brother Philip, draws to a close, let me ask you this. As much as we've talked a lot about the the contrasts, not only in in reaching people with the gospel across the continent of India, but then, too, contrast in the way it is handled in India versus the Western world. But the one thing, in addition to the message being the same across both scenarios, and that is this notion of coming alongside an individual in discipleship. Um, as much as you have to do that to help the intellect understand and open his or her spiritual eyes to understand what they're reading. The same thing is true here in the United States, anywhere that you go. And so, again, we come back full circle to that original model Mm -hmm. demonstrated by the first century church as handed down by the apostles as hands down the most effective means of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is right. That's what exactly the the, the church planters in India now uh, are... uh, um, uh, trained to do, they're equipped to do, like, you know, come back to the basics, <laughs> back to the Bible again, you know, because we have a wonderful model set by the first century church. What happened when they were doing these four things? Number one, the, they were uh, uh, doing the, the teachings of the apostles. They were doing the sacraments. They had the fellowship. They were praying. When they, they have done these four things, there are other things happened uh, as the uh, there's, as the impact of their meeting together, you know, miracles started taking place. People started coming to the Lord. And, you know, as you read Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, up to 6, you see that, you know, the numbers were humongous, mm-hmm. multiplied day after day. You know, that's what exactly is happening in India today. That's what's happening today. Because obedience-based discipleship teaching is going on. Intentional discipleship. Not not later. Mm-hmm. Let's do it later. No. Once a person comes to know the Lord, make him 
intentional. Let me make a statement. If you're not fishing, you're not following. Jesus said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So when you follow, there is a business that you have to do. This is what exactly we teach to uh, our Indian church planters. And I think that's an important note to, to underscore as we conclude our conversation today because it would be folly for anyone to suggest that you could go along the side of the river, uh, lay a basket out there, and say, come fishies, and watch them just swim up and jump into the basket. It doesn't happen that way. You need to intentionally put the bait on the hook, on the line, drop the line in the water, wait for the fish to respond to the bait, pull it up, grab the line, and put the fish in the basket. It is a very intentional, very purpose-minded procedure in order to catch fish. And the same thing is true when we are fishers of men. It needs to be not just incidental or accidental discipleship. It needs to be intentional discipleship because that intentional discipleship then begats other intentional disciples. You're right. And we make the difference then or the delineation between giving a man a fish for a day versus teaching him to fish for a lifetime. And in the case of the application of of that, that methodology when it comes to sharing the gospel, when we underscore the importance of intentional discipleship, we can then see a church that continues to advance strong and increase not only in numeric growth, but also in spiritual, spiritual growth. growth. You know, um, uh, the concern of uh, the church today is not the growth, it's the health. Mm-hmm. Are we growing healthy? Do we have healthy churches so that the healthy church can reproduce? Well, it's the same question we even face, uh, Brother Philip, here in America, and that is that uh, the church can oftentimes readily be accused of being, what's the old adage, a mile wide and only an inch deep. And that's because that oftentimes that intentional discipleship is missing. Prayer, Bible study, sharing of one's faith, all of those components is missing. And that can be as detrimental to the health of the church in America as it can be on the continent of India. Brother Philip, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Pleasure is uh, mine. We encourage our listeners to be in prayer for your ministry, for the work of Mission India. And if you want to find more information about uh, what Brother Philip is doing and what God is doing across the continent of India, you can get more details on the web at missionindia.org. That's missionindia.org.